In the United States, the Library of Congress houses something called the National Recording Registry. Each year, a list of sound recordings that are deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically important and inform or reflect life in the United States are preserved, presumably for as long as the United States exists. In 2010, the library selected a hip-hop album that reflected a very particular part of American life. But the album wasn't crafted in the alleyways of Compton, Los Angeles, it wasn't penned in the projects of Brooklyn, New York, or the south side of Chicago, or any of the other locales we associate with classic hip-hop. This album was made by three high school friends in the leafy, middle-class suburbs of Amityville, Long Island. Kelvin Mercer, David Jolicoeur, and Vincent Mason Jr. would spend any free time they had after school, sifting through their parents' vinyl collections listening to old funk and soul records. They worked as janitors to finance their dreams of recording a demo tape. And their 1988 demo tape would catch the attention of tastemakers in New York just an hour's drive away. And when they signed a deal with Tommy Boy Records, Vincent was still in high school. It's hard to say what Tommy Boy thought they were getting when they signed three part-time janitors from the suburbs to a record deal, but there was no way of knowing that the trio, collectively known as De La Soul, were going to release a debut album that would tangibly and drastically change the shape of hip-hop forever. On March 3rd, 1989, De La Soul released Three Feet High and Rising. It has been consistently regarded as one of the most influential and important records in hip-hop history, going platinum in the United States and being recognised for its impact by the Library of Congress. Which is why it's a shame that it was completely outdone four days later by Girl You Know It's True, the US debut of infamous frauds Millie Vanilli, which sold over 7 million copies worldwide and earned the duo a Grammy for Best New Artist before they had to give it back. Can you really fake it until you make it? Should it be Milli Vanilli enshrined in the Library of Congress? We're gonna find out. Welcome to When Albums Collide. Welcome to the When Albums Collide podcast. Joe Boaz with you. Also with me, Pedro Duran. Pedro, how's things? Uh, things are good, Judd. Things are good. Kind of loosen up on the restrictions here in Melbourne. So I would like to thank our supreme leader for his benevolence, Dan Andrews. Thank you. And uh, many blessings to you. <laughs> Pedro, how did you go this week with, with our albums? First of all, I can tell you for a fact that both of them are a little bit difficult to find. Oh, yeah, that is crazy. Yeah, um, they they were difficult to find. Um, I didn't find them in any of the streaming services that I subscribe to, so I am um, I had to uh, search the depths of the internet to to get them. I don't know what do you what in your it, it, I'm gonna get your opinion on it because in the in past episodes, if the albums are hard to find, they tend to be um, terrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I I finally got my hands on them. It's it's crazy too because both of these albums wildly popular and wildly successful at their time. So the fact that they're hard to find is down to a, a myriad of reasons. We're covering De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, which came out March 3rd, 1989, and Girl You Know It's True by Milli Vanilli, which came out four days later, March 7th, 1989. So the reason these albums are so difficult, before I get into how you know these artists, Girl You Know It's True is just a repackaged US release of an album that came out earlier in Europe called All or Nothing by Milli Vanilli. Because, you know... 
if it doesn't happen in the US, it doesn't really count. <laughs> That's true. So they decided to relaunch it as their quote-unquote debut. And because the internet didn't exist, no one's going to know that this isn't their first album. So it was repackaged with all the hits. The album that you can get on Tidal or Spotify or, or what have you, that album is going to be all or nothing or original cuts. For De La Soul, a lot of their stuff isn't available online at all. For purchase, for streaming, mainly due to two factors. One is a disagreement with their original record label, Tommy Boy, who wanted to give them only 10% of the profits for streaming. Whereas, you know, usually you'll get all of the profits, I don't know. They only Mm. wanted to give them 10% and they were like, fuck that. And it's sort of tied into the second problem with not having this album on streaming services is the massive, massive amount of samples on this album. Mm. There are over 200 samples on this album, and I'm not even going to be able to scratch the surface of each one when we do the track by track. So while you do have um, a lot of sample-heavy albums on Spotify, I'm thinking a lot of Public Enemies early albums. I'm thinking of NWA, Straight Outta Compton. Lots and lots of samples on these albums. The reason you can stream these is because record labels have gone back and cleared every single sample on the album. They've gone through and meticulously paid everyone or credited everyone so they can stream it. For De La Soul, first of all, they didn't do that, and we're going to get into that later, the the legal troubles they had. But for De La Soul, the vague language in their early contracts when they were making these records made it uniquely difficult for particular samples to be cleared, specifically for digital release. So the contracts were drawn up in, like, 1989, long before the internet was even a thing. They didn't even envision that you'd be able to stream music. So the samples that they cleared were for cassette tapes and vinyls, you know, and probably later CDs. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't envision there was going to be an internet. So while you can still buy De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising on cassette tape, they actually don't have the legal rights to stream the music digitally. So they're trying to renegotiate it as we speak. They've been doing it. It's a battle that's raged on for years. But as of this moment, you still can't stream or purchase digitally De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising. Wow, that's that's fascinating. No iTunes or anything, even no, for like singles? No, or anything no. Like I mean, they're trying to work it out, but it's also the people with the rights to it, Tommy Boy, they want to kind of take all the profit for themselves and not give it to the artist. Mm. So they refuse to yeah. to negotiate really. So it's 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 yeah. been raging as as you know as recent as last year and still nothing. Crazy. So Pedro, what can you tell me about your experience with both of these artists before we dive into the track by track? In in regards to De La Soul, um this album typically comes up on, you know, any list that says greatest album, particularly any greatest hip hop album, greatest rap album, and I'm a, a massive hip hop fan, rap fan, as you and uh, listeners of the show would know. Um, so it, it constantly comes up, um, and that's how I know them. I have never listened to this album in its entirety until this week, so I was looking forward to it, and um, I was surprised, and um, I'm gonna be honest with you, a little disappointed because I, I was expecting something bigger. But that's not De La Soul's fault, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. As far as Millie Vanilli goes, um, it's one of those things, and I mentioned it a bunch of times on the show, uh, pop culture osmosis. I, I just heard about their story, I think, even before I listened to any of their music, of the, the rise and fall of this duo that got caught, probably the most infamous music scandal ever, where uh, they got caught lip-syncing. They had to return their Grammys that they've won. And um, unfortunately, the story ends in tragedy. And I just remember back in the day seeing a lot of spoofs about them. 
um, and live in color. You know, late night television will make uh, a, a lot of jokes at their expense. Top 10 new jobs for Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Millie Vanilli, top Riff. 10 new jobs. You know, they were exposed for not actually appearing on their Grammy Award winning record album. They do not sing. They do not sing on it at all. On their own record. That's right. Here we go. Uh, that's right, they're not, they don't sing on their own record. On their record. own record, they do not sing. And the number one new job for Millie Vanilli, who cares, just as long as we don't hear from them ever again. So, um, that's how I was familiar with, uh, Millie Vanilli. So, Millie Vanilli, interesting story, as we mentioned. If you're not familiar with them, and I would understand if a lot of younger people aren't familiar with them, because they were erased off the planet. You know, they were absolutely, after the, their slip-up, their careers were torpedoed and they never recovered. So there's, you know, there's no reason to maybe realise how big they were and that they sold something like seven or eight million copies of the album just in the US. But it all starts with a dark and dodgy record producer, like it always does in the music business, called Frank Farian. He's a German guy, and he actually had his first success with the group Boney M. Um, I don't know if you know them, Rasputin. No. Really, you don't know Boney M? No. Um, the songs like Daddy Cool, very famous. So they were a disco group, and it was really the same deal, where Frank Farian was actually the person that was doing the vocals, and then he hired this group of black musicians to do the aesthetic, if that makes sense, to dance on stage and do the lip-syncing, so it looks cooler. And to European audiences, it was more exotic, I guess, seeing a black group do disco. Yeah. And you know what? It works, because you watch Boney M live, the vocals sound great, Frank Farian's vocals sound great, and you've got Bobby Farrell up the front, and he's just coked out of his gourd just going wild and it's great you know but it was a sign of things to come because he ripped off boney m and bobby farrell in particular as well according to bobby farrell's daughter she said when dad asked frank farian for a hundred thousand marks he was told to sign some papers he signed everything away image rights royalties the lot my father lost everything we had to move in with my grandmother in the netherlands and live on welfare Frank Farian doesn't care. He got his money, he used them, he got what he needed out of it. Mm. So let's skip forward to the late 80s. He's looking for his next hit, and he hears about these two handsome German dudes with an awesome look, the spandex shorts, the dreadlock hair extensions, the thigh-high boots, and he fucking smells money, my man. He can see the dollar signs. So he's got these songs that he wants to put out. He thinks he has a good pop album on his hands. He just... He doesn't, you know, look very young anymore, and he probably can't release it himself. He just needs, like, a mascot to release these songs. Enter Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus, and I hope I got that right. Sounds like you did, yeah. I'm pretty sure you're right. They get a call to come to Frank Farian's studio, and so Pilatus, as he recalls, he said, We were just dumb little kids, so we go. And we got to the studio, Girl, You Know It's True, which is the big single, was just a demo. And he asked our opinion of it and if we could sing it. And we said, yeah, we could sing it. And he said, oh, beautiful. <laughs> Next week, I've already booked some shows. So don't worry, I'll make you into a millionaire. You don't have to sing. Just just lip sync for me and we'll get you to sing later on. And he just strung them out like this over and over again, sort of lying to them because they thought they were being signed as artists. And he didn't need them as artists. He needed them as mascots, as pretty faces to put to the music. And hey, when you're a struggling musician and there's two of you, and a guy offers to give you millions of dollars just to, you know, lie and lip sync, you're probably going to take the money. You know, we like to think, oh, my artistic integrity. No, everyone would take the money. Everyone would take the money. It was all going so well, too. Picked up Grammy, Best New Recording Artist. 
hit album, going platinum all over the world. Pedro, let's dive into it and break these two albums down, released four days apart, track by track. The title track, Girl You Know It's True, Milli Vanilli with Girl You Know It's True. What did you think? I'm not going to lie, man. I love this song. It's been stuck in my head all week. This is a good fucking yeah, it's song. A, it's a really yeah, good it's song. it's a good, catchy song. So you can say whatever about them lip singing and whatever. This dude, Frank, he knew what he had. He's able to compose something. And yeah, the melody is great. The opening is, is awesome. It is. It's just a catchy song. It's it's a it's an earworm. It's been sucking my my brain all week because uh, i've been listening to this album and i've gone back and watched the videos and the video is hilarious because um the way they're dancing there's a, a little dance move that they do that's uh they're sticking their hands in the air and, and things like that um it's it's iconic because i think that was like their signature dance move and um as i mentioned earlier whenever i would watch a, a spoof of them or comedians you know making fun of them or whatever they always emulate that particular dance move but uh yeah the song is great and i think it's still a a, a banger of a pop song it's interesting because this is pretty much like a straight hip-hop song which you know it's it's sort of they're an r&b duo but i think this is much closer to hip-hop he's practically rapping in this and when i say he not neither rob or fab from Milli Vanilli are rapping this Besides the obvious flow, it also has, it heavily samples a few tracks, including ripping the drums off Ashley's Roach Clip by the Soul Searchers. Or as I would call them, the Eric B and Rakim paid in full drums. Mm. This song actually has an interesting history because it wasn't even written by Frank Farian. It was actually written by a Baltimore group called New Marks and released in 1987, so two years before it was re-released in the US. And it wasn't popular at all or it didn't get airplay for whatever reason. It did blow up, however, in clubs in Germany, which is probably where Farian heard it and he decided to mm. steal it. This version sounds pretty much identical to the Newmarks version. It's just much cleaner in terms of vocals and production. I'm in love with you, girl, girl on my mind. You don't want to think about this every time when you crack, when you crack a smile and everything you do. Don't you understand, girl, this love is you. So there's more of a budget behind it. And wouldn't you know it, he stole it, shined it up, polished a turd, re-released it, and it was a massive, massive hit. Yeah, it's it's a little bit dodgy. I'm, I don't know if this even happens, could happen these days because of the internet and people would know that things have been ripped off um, so heavily. But yeah, it, it works. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because of the landscape of what it is, it instantly would be able to put out the original and be um, exposed. That's why, as we go on, that's why I think it's interesting that Millie Vanilli got so far without... Um, anyone questioning their origins, you know, because I mean, when you listen to the music, it's we sing or they rap with American accents, right? But when you hear them talk in interviews, it's very apparent they're not American at all. Like they have very strong European accents. So this is absolutely something that tipped people off to it because they'd be doing this interview and you're listening to them and like, how can you sing? How do you sing so well when you can barely speak English in this interview? And people were, and they're like, something's not right here. Yeah, it's crazy. They were able, yeah, they were able to pull it off because um, people didn't have that access to, you know, the internet wasn't a thing back then. 
The first real public sign of them being lip syncers, 21st of July 1989. Um, so they didn't get away with it for too long. They had to do a live performance at a theme park in Bristol, Connecticut, live on MTV. And as they describe it, they were singing this, their big hit song, and how they were going to do it. They have the backing track on a hard drive. They just play the song and lip sync along with it. No harm, no foul. Easily done. So they play it, and as they detail it... It stopped. Girl, you know it's girl, you know it's girl. 80,000 people. Girl, you know it's girl, you know. You know, I couldn't repeat it 15 times. Girl, you know, it got obvious. So I stopped. I panicked. I ran off stage. Julie Brown, who used to work for MTV, ran after me. I didn't want to go back to stage. I had enough. 80,000 people waiting. I said, I have enough. I quit. Funnily enough, despite like the big furor about this, no one in the crowd minded. Everyone was just having a really good time and they didn't even notice anything was yeah. wrong, which is pretty funny, I thought. But the big thing with them is that it's just not them singing. Yeah, it's not Millie Vanilli on the track. It's actually John Davis, Brad Howell, and Charles Shaw on the track. Now, they're credited as backing vocals on the album liner notes, but they're actually the lead vocals, and Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus are credited with vocals, and what they actually did was... Do yeah. nothing. Well, I saw on the uh, it was credited as well as visual performance. Yeah, they had to give them something because in the music videos it's them and on stage it's them. Um, and they're probably much better looking than the three guys I mentioned doing backing vocals, but it is what it is, right? There's plenty to unpack with Milli Vanilli and with all that. Let's continue on though because I want to get to the first song on Three Feet High and Rising, De La Soul. It's an intro and really... It's a skit. <laughs> Here <we> Pedro, go. <laughs> you know how I feel about yeah, skits, yeah. right? They fucking suck. And I've said it in many an episode. I fucking hate skits. <laughs> My God, a fucking rap skit. Why are rap skits a thing? They always suck. They always suck. I'm telling you right now. Rap skits have never been good. <laughs> and so now we have an album where De La Soul is more or less credited with inventing the hip-hop skit. The reason behind this is because they're treating this 67-minute project as one big piece of psychedelic art. You know, it's a journey. So in this respect, the, the skits are supposed to give it a bit of an ebb and flow to it. And the reason I hate hip-hop skits usually is because an album for most hip-hop artists is a collection of songs. It's a glorified playlist, right? You just put your singles in a list and then you put it on the CD and it's great. If I'm skipping forward to the good songs, what purpose do the skits serve if I'm always skipping mm. them? It's not like Kendrick Lamar where it's part of the song at the end and it tells a story. Thankfully, because of the spread of MP3s and later on streaming, skits have died off or they've just been worked into songs and it's, it's not an issue mm -hmm. anymore. But the skits here are so intrinsically shaped into the album like if you're going into three feet high and rising and you're just picking a few songs to listen to you're gonna have a bad time because this album almost demands that you listen to it as a whole or in large mm. parts so you can hear the skits and the flow of the album it's dotted with these 90 second interludes non sequitur samples psychedelic breaks if you're going to do skits this is sort of a blueprint of how to do it fully integrated into the album i still didn't like them though i hate skits man i hate no skits. no you're you're it's it's uh it, it totally makes sense and i knew uh <laughs> going in that this was going to be um something we're going to talk about because we, we we talked earlier in the week and came up yeah it, it, it is interesting i i mean i don't mind skits 
if they are, I guess, essential to the album. And there, and we'll, let's just stick with hip hop skits. I mean, there's some that I've heard in the past where they um, contribute, pull something out. The Eminem show. There's a skit before the song "Soldier," which uh, uh, sets the scene for the song itself. And then on the other end, there's just skits in a hip hop album where it's just the guys and his crew fucking around, just talking some shit. Big Pun has a lot of those skits and it's it's fine, but eventually people do skip them because who can really care? I, I tend to think about it in a more of a practical way. Uh, I know that a lot of time record labels uh, demand a certain amount of tracks on an album. So when I hear a skit that's really ridiculous or non-essential um i just assume they need an album filler so they said let's make a skit we'll make it funny and and we'll put it on to uh meet the the track qualification so as i said i understand you view it as in its entirety as a piece of art and because hip-hop skits had never really existed before this i guess we can give it a pass as culturally or aesthetically significant But yeah, not for me. So this intro is just like they're all on a game show and it just sounds like it's just a bunch of guys fucking around in a room together with a microphone, which is pretty much what you and I do every week, (laughs) but it's just, it's lazy. (laughs) So the first real song is The Magic Number. It's heavily based off Schoolhouse Rock, Three is the Magic Number, and also you may have heard it in any Three Mobile ad in the past 15 years. They love using this song. This is a wonderful intro to the group because it is a trio and there's three of them. So the three is the magic number they're talking about is the trio and it's a very good intro to the group itself because this is their debut and it's probably the first song you're going to hear from them. Um, I thought this was a really great intro. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was dope. I I like this song very much. Uh, I thought it was, um, I agree, it's a great introduction. Three, the magic number. There's three of them in there. The song is very playful. Uh, The beat is very... um, cool and laid back i i I try to put myself you know as a a music listener when the album came out originally so if i'm in the late 80s and i'm listening to this and you know a lot of the other hip-hop on the scene it's kind of more aggressive you got ll cool j or you got someone like ice t and even gangster rap is on the rise with nwa and you listen to these guys it is very different it's very charming i can see why um people gravitated to uh to the album another thing about this song is sort of how hippie it feels and this is an image that they cultivated and then really wanted to get rid of because they weren't really hippies they didn't really feel like that it's just the aesthetic that had been given Mm -hmm. to them so on the album cover you have lots of like little flowers drawn like it's like a throwback to the 60s and they had backup dancers giving out flowers at their concerts and stuff so it was part of this this phase they were going through. and But I think this song helps a lot to that aesthetic because it sounds very 60s or 70s. It sounds much like a throwback to a hippie era. And as far as hippie rap goes, this is what I would think of. Definitely. I mean, but you know, they say they talk about maybe a rejection of that image, but they I feel like they do kind of play into it a lot. I mean, there's literally a song on the album called The Daisy Age. I think they have to um, take a little bit of uh, responsibility for the the image that's been cultivated. Mila Vanilli return with Baby Don't Forget My Number. And we've already got a flavor of this album. It might be hip hop, quote unquote, but it ain't rapping about the streets or money or whatever. This is all ladies tracks. It's all singing to a girl about baby, you so fine. Baby, don't forget my number. 
This was their first number one hit in the US, and you know this was a big song because Weird Al Yankovic even had a parody of it. That's how you know you've made it, when you get parodied by Weird Al. But it won't go down. They sampled the exact same drums two songs in a row on this album. This is the exact same sample that I mentioned before of Ashley's Roach Clip by the Soul Searchers. They used this drum loop two times mm, in a row. Perfect. That is lazy. That is fucking lazy. <laughs> two singles as well. It's like, I'm putting this on Frank Farian. Could you not just find another drum beat to use? Two songs in a row. You put them side by side on the album. You, we're comparing it against an album that has 200 different samples and no song sounds anything like each other. I was shocked. Mm, I mean, he he's just sticking to know to what he knows works. As you mentioned at the top of the show, he's uh, hustled you know musical acts before and he's going to do it again with uh, Millie Vanilli. So he's probably using that application into his music as well. He's just like, I'm going to just take the drums from this, I'll make a song and I'll take the drums from this again and we'll make another song and yeah baby don't forget my number i found this song to be a little more pop than um the previous song it's fine i it, it's it's a it's a nice catchy pop song i didn't realize this was um a big hit in the u.s first because i always think about you know it's going to be you know like the name of the album girl you know it's true but yeah it's um yeah it, it's 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 fine it's 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 catchy it it, it gets the job done And the next song on their album, More Than You'll Ever Know, which is a very New Jack Swing type uh, music. I mean, can you describe New Jack Swing music to people who might not be familiar? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, new. How do you describe it? It's kind of like a. It's kind of hip hop, but it has kind of a bit of an offbeat. I, I would say culturally, like growing up in the U.S., particularly like amongst like the Black community, African American community, it was music that was a little more acceptable than hip-hop was at the time you know what i mean so it's not as slow as r&b but it's a lot more um upbeat and a lot more like a party songs and stuff like that and it was a lot more like i said acceptable and less controversial than hip-hop or rap was at the time and i remember just like older people or like just mature people at the time listening to new jack and accepting that a lot more and you know there's massive massive songs boys to men started with that uh tlc fucked around with new jack teddy riley is a a, a massive producer who i I think he gets credited the originator like inventing it i guess new jack um i i love it It, it's um it's it's awesome i I believe that it started up in washington dc um and then it just became super popular after that and it's ironic because nowadays you'll hear someone like uh bruno mars kind of doing that new jazz swing sound with um songs with like cardi b finesse yeah finesse like if you listen to finesse it's definitely definitely influenced by uh new jack swing it's almost like a parody of it because even that opening thing you hear the the drum beat like And that, like, seriously, like, almost like... 808 drum, yeah. yeah, yeah. Every New Jack uh, swing song starts off like that. So, um, yeah, he's really capitalized on that. So we see Frank Farry and he's like, fuck, what's popular now, man? Oh, I'll do a New Jack swing song. Like, you know, I'll throw some, I'll throw some black guys on it and I'll get some New Jack swing and it's going to sell, like, hotcakes. Right. And, I mean, he wasn't wrong. 
De La Soul, the next song on their album, Change in Speak. Uh, you got some main samples here by The Mad Lads, No Strings Attached, and Bra by Simand. It's so interesting, and we're going to talk, I'll use this because it's impossible to go really through this album track by track because it, it doesn't really fit the format of this show. Mm-hmm. But how sample heavy all these tracks are, it really makes you realize what a bygone era of music this was because a hip-hop album cannot be released today that sounds like this it just it's too many samples it's you would lose too much money making the album to make it worthwhile to even try release the album because this would this album to make if you were to clear all the samples da 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 it would cost millions and millions of dollars because everyone wants their cut, all these artist music that you're using. So this can't really exist anymore. The closest that exists is someone like Girl Talk, who doesn't sell his music, he just releases it for free, or like The Avalanches, which is full plunderphonics. But yeah, this is a crazy song, because and an album in general, a lot of these songs, because there's so many samples all over the place. It's a really love letter to their influences and a love letter to their music, Sharp contrast to Milli Vanilli, for sure. But, um, I mean, what do you think of Change and Speak, but about the sampling in general? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's fine. As we go through the album, it becomes apparent that they are taking elements from this artist and that artist and putting it all in. It is super interesting that nowadays this type of production couldn't be done. So this goes to show how new hip-hop was at the time. I guess that people didn't really take it into consideration. You know, they, it seems like these guys were just dudes that were just left to their own devices to do whatever and, and to make an a- and to make an album and put it out there maybe even to the point that the music industry didn't even take them that serious they were able to basically take elements from this and that and make a collage of, of something brand new and i think that's the reason why this album is considered amongst a lot of people to be a classic because you're not able to do something like this uh, nowadays. And then the next songs, Jennifer Taught Me, and especially Ghetto Thang, I thought were great. I thought Ghetto Thang was fantastic. In particular, it has this killer bass line and a Kraftwerk sample, which is, again, it differentiates them from every other hip-hop act. How many hip-hop bands do you know in 1989 that were sampling German electronic music, you know, electronic techno? Trugoy's rapping is on point here, especially in the little ghetto section he has where he just raps about the ghetto. Yeah, man, I, I, that was my, my favorite part. Ghetto game to ghetto name from ghetto ways. Now there could be some ghetto gangs and ghetto play. If ghetto thing can have its way and ghetto range, then there must be some ghetto love and ghetto change. I don't know if it was like ahead of it for its time or contemporary because it really stood out to me the way he just put his wordplay uh, together. And, but it was interesting, I want to say, that the song is like super noteworthy, uh, in particular in this album, because a lot of the other songs are really super positive and kind of uh, cheerful and, and, and happy. Whereas uh, a song like ghetto thing is, um, you know, it's, they're talking about, it's the closest they will get to a street song. Exactly. Whereas, you know, NW, like if you look at, listen to straight out of Compton, it's all street songs. So this is really the only glimpse of it you get because Dale, all you get the impression like they're sort of like maybe middle class. Yeah. Like they live in the suburbs yeah, or well, something. They are they, they, middle class uh, neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Like they don't live in Compton on the streets. So they're rapping to be true to themselves, but they do have one song where you see a glimpse of that life a little bit. Yeah. I, if like, if I was back in the day listening to them, I would figure that these are like three college kids, you know, they went to uh, an HBC or something like that. And they got a bunch of microphones and just started recording and, and, and started doing their thing. And that's why they're coming from a different perspective. Whereas you listen to a group like NWA, you're like damn near scared because you're like, these these guys are really like just killing people and shooting cops and 
and, and all that because of the way they present themselves on the record. We're going to take a pause for the calls. We'll be back with more. Hey everyone, Steve here from Play Your Pods Right. Do you like game shows? Do you like weird 90s nostalgia that only a select few of us will ever understand? Then why not join me and my best mate Simon as every Wednesday we take a deep dive into that weird and wonderful world of the 90s game show. From Cluedo to Gladiators to Crystal Maze. Hell, even all the best works of Bruce Forsyth. That's right, Brucey himself. So it's nice to see you to see you nice every Wednesday for Player Pods Right on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts and a whole host of other providers. Take care everyone. Welcome back to One Album's Collide. We're comparing Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul, which was released on March 3rd, 1989, and Girl, You Know It's True by Millie Vanilli, released four days later, March 7th. Um, the next tracks we have on the album, I mean, I think it's a banger. I don't know about you, but Millie Vanilli's Blame It on the Rain. Fuck yes, my friend. This is more of an R&B track than maybe hip-hop or New Jack Swing, and it works so well yeah dude i've been I, right before we started recording i was just singing in the elevator <laughs> blame it on the rain like i'm thinking maybe a prince influence here mm. like a little bit of purple yeah, rain purple or something rain, yeah, but this is like late 80s perfection you say what you want about this fucking cd record producer he has an ear for a hit yeah and it's not the two on stage robin fab but whether it's charles shaw john davis brad howell whoever sang this song does an awesome job his voice is amazing on this track mm. and i think one of them came out after all the lip-syncing, you know, nonsense came out and said, I was paid $150,000 to stay silent about it, but I won't stay silent anymore. I want the credit. And you should want to take credit because this is a banger of a song and you sound great on it. Yeah, it's crazy because after that whole scandal came out, the the real singers actually recorded and attempted to put an album out, you know, as them. And it, it failed miserably, even more forgotten than Millie Vanilli, but... Yeah, this song, what do you think it's more of their signature song? Uh, Blame It on the Rain or Girl, You Know It's True? I prefer Girl, You Know It's True, but Blame It on the Rain might be their best song. Mm. Just because I think they suit, the the voices and instrumentation, they suit that style of slow R&B jam a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And also it's so melodramatic, right? Yes. (laughs) The two guys, Rob and Fab, can like act their way across the stage on this song it's great this is something i wanted to point out so i i when we do um these albums i tend to look at the music videos because i'm obsessed with music videos i love watching them and i think they're really like a lost art form i'm watching the music video for um for this song knowing that they're lip singing he is going hard in the paint man like he he takes that microphone he's on the floor you know what i mean he's on the floor with the microphone the microphone's between his legs he's dancing with the microphone like he's fucking mick jagger and all these things and i'm sitting there i was like bro like (laughs) like you're, you're just mouthing the words to the song but i'll give him credit for just feeling the music and i don't blame him because 
I would do the same thing. Like I was doing the same thing last night in the shower, just like, <laughs> you know, just singing my, my ass off, just blame it on the rain that was falling. Blame it on the stars that don't shine at night. Like, and, and I love how, I guess in the lyrics that the narrative of the song is that it's a lost love. Um, him and his girl or par- his partner broke up or whatever. And he feels regret and instead of putting the blame on himself, he's blaming all these things, you know, like the rain and the stars, because um, they won't matter. They won't, you know, uh, the rain and the stars and the clouds or whatever, aren't to aren't going to, I guess, take offense to that. Or you know, he's looking for everything else to blame but himself. So, uh, it's me- a super melodramatic song, but fuck, man, I love it. I really do. And also, like they were so ahead of their time because lip syncing now is like a fun thing that Jimmy Fallon will do on the Tonight Show. Oh, like they lip sync, and wow. you know, Ru- RuPaul's Drag Race at the end of each show, they have to they have to lip sync for their lives and like do a lip sync. Like Fab and Rob are so good at it, mm. and they look. Like they're good looking dudes. Yeah. Say what you man. Those those are they're like male model tier guys. Yeah. They were just way too early. This would have been acceptable in twenty twenty. Yeah. And it would have been seen as like a a new cool concept. Like you have lip syncers on stage and it's an artistic statement on so they were just ahead of their time. Wow. You are so right. If they were to come out today, put out a YouTube channel and just be forthright like we're just lip singing people would be amazed about it and fuck man they were- yeah like this is they they literally were tiktok before tiktok were oh thing. my fucking goodness you're absolutely right yeah um de la soul i'm just gonna skim through because this is a 24 track album yeah 67 minutes we can't cover it all but one of the highlights of the skits and it's it's almost it's almost a poetic ironic marker of what this album is and its place in the music business transmitting live from mars mm-hmm. this is a brief brief skit and i'm talking it is a 72 second skit and all it is is it's a song and they've played a french instructional tape over the top of it like how to teach you how to speak french yeah it is yeah it basically says like what time is it and do you know the time and and, etc écoutez et répétez à midi à midi à midi yeah, it's nothing, right? It's just like they thought it would be like a funny little thing to do, and it's just a, to give you a break from the music, right? Right. They happened to sample a song on this by the Turtles called You Showed Me. And when this album went gold, the Turtles realized that they could sue them. And so they settled out of court for $1.7 million, which is a crazy amount of music because they used four bars of music for 72 seconds, and they got $1.7 million taken away from them. Yeah. Crazy. It's probably a bit of what is this hip hop nonsense? They're stealing my music, mm-hmm. and a little bit of shit, man. Like this album just went gold. We can make a lot of money if we sue them. It's not like a rock and roll musician has never ever stolen a riff or a bassline or a drum break. So I find it a little bit sanctimonious that they come in and you know complain about it. I understand sampling; they should have cleared the samples, but still, it's crazy. And I think the the worst thing about it is this song was so unnecessary. It's not a song. It's just a little skit they did, 72 seconds. No one bought the album for this skit, you know? No one even knew the skit existed, and they lost nearly $2 million over it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It just goes to show, I mean, uh, people always say the music business is cutthroat, and that's a, this is a great example of, of that. I think, I think there's a lot to unwrap there. I mean, we've spoken, we did the episode of, with John Cena uh, versus Gorillaz, 
and I asked you and um, and my brother Christian why most people that aren't traditional musicians, when they try to put out an album of some sort, they always go to rap. And I think the answer you guys were saying is because a lot of people don't really respect hip hop and rap that much. And I think that example with the Turtles is another example of that. You know, when, as you said, a lot of rockers, rock musicians might take a riff here and there and there's some kind of leniency it seems like with hip hop and, and rap and particularly in the early days, it was just kind of like, well, we don't want these artists <laughs> or these guys to, to sample our music because we don't really understand it. So we're just going to sue the pants off them and see how, you know, get as much as, as we can and be as uh, ruthless about it. So, but it, it, I, I had this, I just had this from this point on, I was just always thinking about the samples as I listened through this album. And so the next song I know um, it's another thing where it has so many different samples, and I think this is a, another wonderful song, mm-hmm. wonderful instrumentation. And I mentioned it at the top of the show, but I'm glad this has been preserved by Congress because yeah. you you really don't get hip-hop like this anymore, and I've said it a couple times. I get it. Copyright law was good because it made hip-hop artists be more diligent and stringent with their samples and expanded their musicality. You know, it would force someone like Kanye West, you can't just fill it up with, you know, soul samples. You've got to do some instrumentation and work some ways around it and mm-hmm. do some interesting things with your own voice. But it still eroded this wonderful period of hip-hop. You know what it makes me think of? Like, this song in particular, I know. It makes me think of a time before Ableton, before Fruit, before anyone had a laptop or a computer. It was just a DJ cutting and mixing vinyl records, different songs, and someone just rapping over it live. It's so DIY. Mm-hmm. And um, it's sad that that's been replaced, basically. And it also makes you think, if these massive lawsuits hadn't happened and you could get away with this, what would the artists of today be able to produce with all these samples? I'm sure they could make some amazing albums and amazing samples, but they just can't afford to do it these days. Yeah, yeah, that, that's super interesting. Unless they have the access to them. You know, you brought up Kanye Kanye West. I think Kanye West is big enough artist to talk to. If it's Kanye West, the record company is going to give Kanye $5 million to make an album because they know they'll make their money back. Right. But but if you're a you know 18 year old rapper, I mean I think De La Soul at this point are like 19. Right. You don't have that. You don't have that backing or that money or that faith from a company to pay to clear all your samples. So you're not going to risk it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I know what you're saying. If Jay Z wants to use a fucking Beatles sample, he will. But for for a lot of up and coming artists, um, they have no chance of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. I guess that's just the the struggle of being an up and coming artist. So. A thing I live by, limitation breeds innovation. So maybe it's best that... You have that tattooed on your ass, don't you? I do. <laughs> Very, right, right across the ass. If anything, it could have made the genre stagnant. Maybe an unseen influence or impact that it has had on rap and hip-hop is that it's made a lot of these artists, producers, really hone their talents and uh, create their own music. Yeah, speaking of a lack of creativity, the next song on Millie Vanilli's album, After the Heights of Kilimanjaro, we're down in the Marianas Trench in terms of momentum because we had Blame It on the Rain, fucking great. And now we get a song like It's Your Thing, yeah, which is just a cover of a 1969 Isley Brothers song. And obviously it's updated to sound a bit more 80s than it did in 1969, but um, pretty bleak, man. Yeah, this I, I heard this and I've heard It's Your Thing so many times, whether it would be the original or even there's millions of covers out there just 
Google, and I've heard it so many times on television ads. And, and for me, this was a very skippable, uh, a skippable song because it was just like, oh, okay. Especially coming off of something like "Blame It on the Rain," I was like, all right, whatever. I can just breeze past this and uh, move forward. But it's interesting. I don't. I, I didn't see anything um, in, in in the research that they were sued or went to court for this uh, this sample or anything because this is pretty big too. But maybe they just uh, cleared it before. They put it out. Yeah, I think Frank Varian had ripped off enough people that he could afford to pay off, you know, the Isley Brothers. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and they are credited, I think, as songwriters. But yeah, as we said, Milli Vanilli, very stock standard. Every fucking song is about a girl or about romance or about something like that, right? Bro, I, every, I never heard the word, the phrase girl or baby. Girl, yeah, every song is like girl, baby, oh girl. It's like uh, if you do the math, like you're gonna get a girl or a baby every point five seconds in the in the album. By contrast, De La Soul, very psychedelic. Very a lot of their songs are shrouded in metaphor and and weird allegories and stuff. Like the song Tread Water, which is rapping about. I had a bath, and then there was a, a, a goldfish in there with me, and then I was walking down the street, and I saw a monkey and all this stuff. I can imagine if you're only accustomed to hearing, you know, Run DMC rap about my Adidas or LL Cool J rock the bells, this is going to sound very, very different and very strange and weird. And all, t- all young people have, like, you know, a little psychedelic phase or whatever. They think, oh, this is so alternative. I'm going to jump on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it, it was interesting listening because I, I was listening to this and I was like, huh, it kind of took me out. I mean, basically the concept of the song is that they're talking to animals to express or rhetoric about doing things that scare you, like trying new things or getting involved in your community and such. But they use it as the example of, you know, I saw an alligator and he told me this and then I saw a monkey and, and, and this. And I was like, oh, OK, that's 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 um that's super interesting. And you get a point 1988, you're listening to it, you're just like, OK, what the, what the hell is the hell are they talking about? Like, you know, I thought rap was supposed to be yeah, yeah. guns, bitches and bling. Yeah. But in 2020, when you listen to a song like this, do you find it to be that? No, I find it to be I find it to be really corny. Um which is which is fine because like society has moved on it's been 31 years since this song came out it would be weird if mm. it wasn't corny it's the same way if if they had listened to songs from the 50s at this point they would have thought they were a little bit corny you know like rock around the clock or johnny be good um so i think yeah. it's just you know society moves on but i can understand how important it would have been yeah definitely even definitely. their more grounded songs like uh, the song potholes in my lawn which is i i took it to mean rappers are stealing their rhymes is is the sort of focus mm. of this song but it's so shrouded in metaphor and innuendo it's hard to discern the meaning whereas milli vanilli is so fucking blatant with their music that even people who don't speak english can sing the songs <laughs> that's a great point <laughs> did you know potholes in my lawn de la soul was the first hip-hop song ever played on mars mm, actually played on the yeah the, mars? the mars rover every day when the mars rover would begin its day they'd beam a song to it for it to play it's related to the task at hand for that day. So if it was collecting rocks, it would be like a Rocky Mountain way they'd play, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first song they played was Goodbye, Goodbye. And so the 73rd song they played was Potholes in My Lawn, the first hip-hop song. Um, you know what was played on day number 12, however? Is it um, 
blame it on the rain? It was who let the dogs out by the Baja man. Oh, Fucking the Baja no. man got played like sixty days before De La Soul. This is a reason we need to defund NASA, all right? They can fuck right yeah. off with that. That's also a reason why extraterrestrials haven't made contact with us, because they're just like, they haven't evolved yet to <laughs> uh, being intelligent beings. We're going to give them a couple of more years before they Yeah, they're still listening to, like, Baha Men? Oof, yeesh. We, we, we stopped listening to that centuries ago. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And another song. I mean, De La Soul, I actually thought this was a very good run for them, because Say No Go, which heavily like heavily 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 samples whole and oats this song is fucking great the topic being about drug use and addiction and the, the line at the start let's get right on down to the skit a baby is brought into a world of pits and if we could have talked that soon in a delivery room and would have asked the nurse for a hit the reason for this the mother is a jerk excuse me junkie was the sample is fantastic of i can't go for that no can do you can't make a song like this anymore or release it for commercial use because it's crazy how much it rips it off um but a wonderful song yeah i i agree the next couple of songs like say no go do as de la does um and even plug tune in um i think they're they're fun songs they're good songs they're like they're they're easy to jam out to you know and that's and that's one thing i uh, notice about this album throughout it you know they're not aggressive at all they're not like shouting in the mic i don't even know if they were really cursing that much or they were like overly vulgar. i can't i can't really remember any swearing yeah, I know that there's a fuck in there because when I did hear it, I was like, oh, they do curse. You know, because it was just, I was like, oh, like it was so sparse that when they did it, it was noticeable to me. You're dead right because it is a laid back album. You can't just put on a single. Like, oh, I'm just going to play one song or I'm just going to listen to a couple MP3s off this album. You got to sort of listen to the whole thing because it's a vibe that they're going for. It's a mood they're right. going for. What did you think of of the the final songs on Millie Vanilli's album? I mean, we, we've skipped over a couple, but songs like Dreams to Remember or All or Nothing, what did you, got, what did you have for them? With like All or Nothing, I wasn't feeling that song at all. I don't know. It, at, at the tail end of um, Billy Vanilli album, girl, you know it's true. I'm just like I don't know. I think they they sh- they shot their load early on, and then it just kind of gets super weak at the end. Even a song like "I'm Gonna Miss You" that that was the weakest song for me. I I, I totally. I did not like that at all. You didn't like I'm Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You, because, you know, that went to number one, like, everywhere. It was number one in the US, in Australia, in Canada. People love that uh, song. Nah, I did not like that song at all. It just, it just, yeah, it just, I know, it wasn't for me. I just, uh, I think I like more of their more upbeat kind of things, and and typically, I'm not against a ballad, you know me. Yeah, you know what's interesting about All or Nothing, Pedro? What's that? They're using the exact same fucking drum sample they used in the first two songs. That means in three fucking songs, they use the same drum sample. Like, how? It's so identifiable, too, because it's so famous. How could you possibly think that's okay? Mm. Oh, man. I was listening to this, and I was scandalized by it, especially because <laughs> I listened to, like, Three Feet High and Rising. Right. It's clear De La Soul cared about this. Like, they really cared about it, right? You listen to it, and there's, like, weird little grabs of, like, Johnny Cash and weird things from TV shows that they've stolen and, like, funny little in-jokes that they have just between themselves. It's a labor of love, hence why 200 million samples they used or whatever. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Frank Farian... The producer of this Millie Vanilli record was like, fuck it, I bought this sample, I'm gonna get my money's worth, let's use it 
three times on our lead three singles. Who gives a shit? People eat it up. They're dumb. And we fucking did. Yep. Oh, like it's it's a really great drum break. I'm not going to knock it. But fuck, it shat me to tears, man. Yeah, well, Frank knows what's what's what the people want, man. This album went six times platinum in the United States, six million copies. You know, he's a genius at, at that. <laughs> De La Soul have a pretty good run. I said, do as De La does, plug tunin, and then they have Della Orgy. This skit is everything I hate about hip hop skits. This is why hip hop skits shouldn't exist. It's fucking awful, man. It is a self-indulgent piece of shit skit where the De La Soul are with Q-Tip and they're pretending to be in an orgy mm-hmm. and for a minute and 17 seconds we're hearing guys pretending to come into a microphone <laughs> which is like you know super cute and all and very raunchy except that we've already reviewed Appetite for Destruction where Axl Rose is legitimately having sexual intercourse on a mic and that came out two years before this so you know it's, it's, it's cute De La Soul but I've heard a man actually coming in a woman okay perfect <laughs> I love how you said <laughs> it just sucks man it's, it just struck me as so corny and lame and it's then not the first or last people to do this I know Pause for Porno jumps out to me, Dr. Dre, yeah, um, that jumps totally. out. and it, But it, it's, it's so unnecessary. Your album's already fucking 67 minutes long. You don't need to add a minute of you orgasming on the track. Really sound. I fucking hated this, man. I don't know if you can tell. Yeah, yeah, the skit's not great. I, I guess I can understand they're 19-year-old kids and just thinking if, you have 19, if you're 19 and you with your, your buddies and just fucking around and you just do that and you and you put it on an album, it's like so funny and stuff, but it's a weak uh, skit. Obviously, this this album is very famous for its skits and the reputation of being the one that jumped it all off. And in the beginning, when you hear that, when they set up that game show narrative, I thought that was going to be it. I thought, you know, we're going to keep continue with, with it. If they would have done that, I would have given them a little leniency with it because it fits into the narrative of the album. But when you drop this, it's just kind of like, wow. There was no reason for this man, and it's a, like a minute over a minute long. Uh, you've got Buddy next, and this is a bit of a posse track because you've got Q-Tip, Fife Dog from Tribe Called Quest. You've got Queen Latifah, Moni Love, and Jungle Brothers on this posse track, which is like, I think is it the first one um, on the album, and it, it, yeah, it, it's pretty good. Yeah, I, I really like this. Uh, I thought this was my favorite song on, on on the album. Laid back, you know, they're using the motif of Buddy here or there and they say it again 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 and stuff like that the fact that you have artists like q-tip and queen latifah on it kind of fits their aesthetic because you know q-tip in a tribe queen latifah has this at the time a very afrocentric uh, persona so i thought it was um put together well <laughs> Um, and then you have Me, Myself, and I. This is a song where they're sort of raging against being called hippies or whatever, even though, like, you have peace symbols on all your album and single covers. Like, what are you expecting to happen? Right. But it's them sort of being sarcastic and dry about being called hippies. This is the biggest hit that I've heard off the album. Like, this is constantly... Oh, is that right? Not not uh, The Magic Number? No, nah, no. Nah. Uh, it was always Me, Myself, and I. I've heard this on the radio so many times, and this is, this is what I was familiar with when it comes to uh, De La So. I think it's a cool song. It doesn't sound like anything else off the album. That It's just that that, that harmony. And I'm sure it's a sample of something as well. George, uh, yeah, the George Clinton sample. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fun- you know, funkadelic. Yeah, now that I think about it, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's actually, it, with, with, with that said, it's almost a precursor to what's going to happen in a couple of years in 1992 when Dre drops a chronic because 
all that is just you know sampling P Funk and George Clinton and, and that sound as well. So um, and so the the last couple songs. This is a recording for Living in a Full Time Era or Life, Daisy Age and Plug Tunin. Um, which is right. just a, it's just like an extended cut of Plug Tunin. The songs on the albums, they don't falter in any way to me. The skits are the weakest points, I think. I think the, the songs keep up all the way through. Um, even a song like I Can Do Anything, um, that track has, you know, some big beatboxing. I, I, I thought it was very much like lunchroom rap. I mean, you grew up in Alice Springs. Did that ever happen where you're in the lunchroom and people just start banging on the table, beatboxing, and everyone gets into an uh, eight-mile type of cipher? <laughs> I didn't grow up in Detroit, but um, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, cool. So, but yeah, I, I, I mean, just growing up in uh, in the States, that's that's kind of a natural thing. That's kind of happens where people just kind of just, you know, bang on the lunchroom table and just... Um, do that so there was a bit of a nostalgia for me with that but that was good i thought it was a nice throwback daisy age sparks beat but it's a good beat it gives a lot of focus to their vocals um which i thought it was nice and then plug tune and um it's a, it's a 12 inch version so i think it's just um a rehash of the of the previous song all right pedro that sounds good let's wrap it up and take it to the breakdown We got these two albums came out side by side and really represent the polar opposites of each other, I felt at least. You have uh, De La Soul, Authentic, Labor of Love, Non-Commercial, in fact it lost money I think, you can't get it anywhere, versus yeah. Milli Vanilli, the definition of a product, these pretty boys that were paraded in front of people to sell records with That's these like highly... <laughs> it's exactly like us. <laughs> with these highly produced, you know, just t- take hits from other bands and gussy them up a little bit and then sell them to the masses, polar opposites, and they came out right next to each other. What did you think of both these albums and why were they each successful? Uh, yeah, I mean, with, with Millie Vanilli, it's just that, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about a bunch of albums on the on the podcast before that are made specifically to sell records and i think with millie vanilli's album girl you know it's true basically a product the guy he hired models to get in front of the camera he hired a band songwriters to write these songs i mean he's rehashing samples he doesn't care what the audience thinks they just put it out there to to make a buck um i feel bad i really do feel bad for uh fab and rob especially um is it fab that uh, ended up committing suicide. As it would turn out, you know, because they got hounded relentlessly, as you said, by the media, like they were made fun of. They were the butt of all jokes. They were a meme before memes perhaps even existed. And you have to imagine that they were serious artists. They could sing, they could rap, they could dance. They just weren't given the opportunity to. And as a result, once you've had your career ruined by lip syncing, no one's ever going to take you seriously ever again. I know that they tried to relaunch their career as the real Milli Vanilli, but the the psychological toll certainly had its impact as a result of not only the negative media attention on him, but also his family. He struggled with substance abuse and suicide attempts, and on the 3rd of April 1998, they were about to do a promotional tour for this new 
album. They're, they're going to be their big return with both Rob Pilatus and Fab Morvan. Um, Rob Pilatus was found dead with a suspected alcohol and prescription overdose in in, a, in his place in Frankfurt. Um, now, the death was ruled accidental, mm-hmm. but, you know, he dealt with those issues and maybe he went to a, a dark place and they never were able to release that album because of, of his death, which is sad. Right. So a tragic end and absolutely not deserved. Really, really horrible to, to see him go out like that for a guy that had talent. He just wasn't able, wasn't allowed to show it. Yeah, it's uh, unfortunate how it all ended. It's easy to make fun of them and stuff like that. But like you said, they were true artists and they didn't get the opportunity to do it. But I still think they have a classic song and, and blame it on the rain. So, and in regards to De La Soul's, you know, Three Feet High and Rising. Yeah, I, I, I guess cultural significance particularly in the world of hip-hop. It's different from what everyone else is putting out, of course. I would say because it's so hard to get nowadays, it, it cements or solidifies the idea that this album is, is, is classic. I wasn't too enamored by it. Or In 2020, you know, I've heard other albums that follow kind of the same formula. And the thing, well, as I was listening to this album, um, I kept thinking of uh, Little Brothers, The Minstrel Show. I don't know if you're familiar with that album. It's a hip-hop album that came out in 2003. Three artists, they're more of the conscious type of rap. They uh, have a lot of skits <laughs> on their album. And actually, the the album does the kind of the game show narrative as well. So um, I kept thinking about um, that album while I was listening to uh, De La Soul album. I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of sometimes an album can be very important and significant while not necessarily being a pleasure to listen to all the mm. time. Not only did De La Soul do all the skit things, pioneer the sampling, what they really did do is provide an outlet for hip-hop in terms of they weren't hard street thugs, like NWA, but they also weren't these like soft cookie-cutter MC Hammer Vanilla Ice type. They were a middle ground for people who didn't fit either of those stereotypes but still liked hip-hop, whether you're white, black, Asian, whatever. They allowed this, like, middle-class hip-hop to flourish. And I think it's a it's a vein that was later filled by, like, an artist like Childish Gambino. He's right. not, like, a, a, a thug, but he's not super cookie-cutter, um, like, you know, Chris Brown or something, right? Right. I think they provided that middle ground, and without an album like this, for kids that are a little bit weird and a little bit strange, and a little bit freaky. That's what they provided. Um, And I think it's really important and very significant. I didn't enjoy it that much because it is dated a little bit. Yes. And I hate skits, but I understand how important it is, and I understand hip-hop wouldn't be where it is today without this album. As for Millie Vanilli, you can't take it like that because there is no significance to it. It is a commercial product, so you take it at face value because that's what's being presented to you. And at face value, some of these songs fucking still slap. 30 years later. Yeah, I love it. I think they got a bad rap. They were unfairly maligned for it, and the music still holds up. So it's a shame that they went out that way. And I think as time goes on, people have come to accept that these songs are good songs, even if they didn't sing them. So with that in mind, if you could pick a song off each album, my man. Well, I'll start with uh, De La Soul. I'll choose buddy it's a click song it's nice and chill laid back i just i think it's indicative of the album um if you like that song you're gonna enjoy the rest of the album and then with um millie vanilli's girl you know it's true oh you already know i'm gonna choose man blame it on the rain blame it on the rain it's gonna be a motto of mine now you know anytime something is at fault the the car breaks down the internet's out i'm just gonna blame it on the rain (laughs) 
All right, for me, uh, for De La Soul, I'm going to go with Say No Go. I love the sample of Hall & Oates, and I love the, the rapping in that. Um, it's just a, a really great song. Check it out. Uh, but there's a couple I could have chosen off that. Honestly, there's, a, there's some really good tracks on that. I didn't hate it when I say that it, it wasn't that enjoyable to listen to, but there's just a lot of padding and stuff that has dated poorly. I'm going to go, even though it's like their biggest song, Girl, You Know It's True. I don't think you can go past it. Millie Vanilli, it's one, one of the best 80 songs out there, um, and it holds up. Also, I really like in, in Girl, You Know It's True, you can tell they can't speak English because he's doing a little talking segment at the start, and he sounds like a fucking robot. He sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, So what are you doing back? Well, I sat back and thought about the things we used to do. It really meant a lot to me. You mean a lot to me. I really mean that much to you? Girl, you know it's true. Obviously it's not him singing, because he can't even speak a sentence in English properly. So I love that little that little quirk at the, at the beginning of it as well. Um, that does it for another episode. We've got more coming up next week, maybe with a special guest as Ooh, well. We'll, we'll nice. talk to you then. Have a good one, guys. Bye. See ya. Bye. Blame it on the rain.